Chapter Two, Part One of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Two. The Internal Prosperity in the Age of the Antonines. Part One. Of the Union and Internal Prosperity of the Roman Empire in the Age of the Antonines. It is not alone by the rapidity or extent of conquest that we should estimate the greatness of Rome. The sovereign of the Russian deserts commands a larger portion of the globe. In the seventh summer after his passage of the Hellespont, Alexander erected the Macedonian trophies on the banks of the Hephaestus. Within less than a century, the irresistible Genghis and the Mogul princes of his race spread their cruel devastations and transient empire from the Sea of China to the confines of Egypt and Germany. But the firm edifice of Roman power was raised and preserved by the wisdom of ages. The obedient provinces of Trajan and the Antonines were united by laws and adorned by arts. They might occasionally suffer from the partial abuse of delegated authority, but the general principle of government was wise, simple, and beneficent. They enjoyed the religion of their ancestors, whilst in civil honors and advantages they were exalted by just degrees to an equality with their conquerors. The policy of the emperors and the senate, as far as it concerned religion, was happily seconded by the reflections of the enlightened, and by the habits of the superstitious part of their subjects. The various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false, and by the magistrate as equally useful, and thus toleration produced not only mutual indulgence, but even religious concord. The superstition of the people was not embittered by any mixture of theological rancor, nor was it confined by the chains of any speculative system. The devout polytheist, though fondly attached to his national rights, admitted with implicit faith the different religions of the earth. Fear, gratitude, and curiosity, a dream or an omen, a singular disorder, or a distant journey, perpetually disposed him to multiply the articles of his belief, and to enlarge the list of his protectors. The thin texture of the pagan mythology was interwoven with various but not discordant materials. As soon as it was allowed that sages and heroes who had lived or who had died for the benefit of their country were exalted to a state of power and immortality, it was universally confessed that they deserved, if not the adoration, at least the reverence of all mankind. The deities of a thousand groves and a thousand streams possessed in peace their local and respective influence, nor could the Romans who deprecated the wrath of the Tiber deride the Egyptian who presented his offering to the beneficent genius of the Nile. The visible powers of nature, the planets, and the elements were the same throughout the universe. The invisible governors of the moral world were inevitably cast in a similar mould of fiction and allegory. Every virtue, and even vice, acquired its divine representative, every art and profession its patron, whose attributes in the most distant ages and countries were uniformly derived from the character of their peculiar votaries. A republic of gods of such opposite tempers and interests required, in every system, the moderating hand of a supreme magistrate, who, by the progress of knowledge and flattery, was gradually invested with the sublime perfections of an eternal parent and an omnipotent monarch. 
Such was the mild spirit of antiquity that the nations were less attentive to the differences than to the resemblance of their religious worship. The Greek, the Roman, and the barbarian, as they met before their respective altars, easily persuaded themselves that under various names and with various ceremonies they adored the same deities. The elegant mythology of Homer gave a beautiful and almost regular form to the polytheism of the ancient world. The philosophers of Greece deduced their morals from the nature of man rather than from that of God. They meditated, however, on the divine nature as a very curious and important speculation, and in the profound inquiry they displayed the strength and weakness of the human understanding. Of the four most celebrated schools, the Stoics and the Platonists endeavored to reconcile the jarring interests of reason and piety. They have left us the most sublime proofs of the existence and perfections of the first cause, but, as it was impossible for them to conceive the creation of matter, the workman in the Stoic philosophy was not sufficiently distinguished from the work, whilst, on the contrary, the spiritual god of Plato and his disciples resembled an idea rather than a substance. The opinions of the academics and epicureans were of a less religious caste, but whilst the modest science of the former induced them to doubt, the positive ignorance of the latter urged them to deny the providence of a supreme ruler. The spirit of inquiry, prompted by emulation and supported by freedom, had divided the public teachers of philosophy into a variety of contending sects, but the ingenious youth who, from every part, resorted to Athens, and the other seats of learning in the Roman Empire, were alike instructed in every school to reject and despise the religion of the multitude. How indeed was it possible that a philosopher should accept as divine truths the idle tales of the poets and the incoherent traditions of antiquity, or that he should adore as gods those imperfect beings whom he must have despised as men? Against such unworthy adversaries Cicero condescended to employ the arms of reason and eloquence, but the satire of Lucian was a much more adequate as well as more efficacious weapon. We may be well assured that a writer conversant with the world would never have ventured to expose the gods of his country to public ridicule, had they not already been the objects of secret contempt among the polished and enlightened orders of society. Notwithstanding the fashionable irreligion which prevailed in the age of the Antonines, both the interests of the priests and the credulity of the people were sufficiently respected. In their writings and conversation the philosophers of antiquity asserted the independent dignity of reason, but they resigned their actions to the commands of law and custom. Viewing with a smile of pity and indulgence the various errors of the vulgar, they diligently practiced the ceremonies of their fathers, devoutly frequented the temples of the gods, and sometimes condescending to act a part on the theatre of superstition, they concealed the sentiments of an atheist under the sacerdotal robes. Reasoners of such a temper were scarcely inclined to wrangle about their respective modes of faith or of worship. It was indifferent to them what shape the folly of the multitude might choose to assume, and they approached with the same inward contempt and the same external reverence the altars of the Libyan, the Olympian, or the Capitoline Jupiter. It is not easy to conceive from what motives a spirit of persecution could introduce itself into the Roman councils. The magistrates could not be actuated by a blind, though honest, bigotry, since the magistrates were themselves philosophers, and the schools of Athens had given laws to the Senate. They could not be impelled by ambition or avarice, as the temporal and ecclesiastical powers were united in the same hands. 
the pontiffs were chosen among the most illustrious of the senators, and the office of supreme pontiff was constantly exercised by the emperors themselves. They knew and valued the advantages of religion as it is connected with civil government. They encouraged the public festivals which humanized the manners of the people. They managed the arts of divination as a convenient instrument of policy, and they respected as the firmest bond of society the useful persuasion that, either in this or in a future life, the crime of perjury is most assuredly punished by the avenging gods. But whilst they acknowledged the general advantages of religion, they were convinced that the various modes of worship contributed alike to the same salutary purposes, and that, in every country, the form of superstition, which had received the sanction of time and experience, was the best adapted to the climate and to its inhabitants. Avarice and taste very frequently despoiled the vanquished nations of the elegant statues of their gods and the rich ornaments of their temples, but in the exercise of the religion which they derived from their ancestors they uniformly experienced the indulgence and even protection of the roman conquerors the province of gaul seems and indeed only seems an exception to this universal toleration under the specious pretext of abolishing human sacrifices the emperors tiberius and claudius suppressed the dangerous power of the druids but the priests themselves their gods and their altars subsisted in peaceful obscurity till the final destruction of paganism rome the capital of a great monarchy was incessantly filled with subjects and strangers from every part of the world who all introduced and enjoyed the favored superstitions of their native country every city in the empire was justified in maintaining the purity of its ancient ceremonies and the roman senate using the common privilege sometimes interposed to check this inundation of foreign rights the egyptian superstition of all the most contemptible and abject was frequently prohibited the temples of serapis and isis demolished and their worshippers banished from rome and italy but the zeal of fanaticism prevailed over the cold and feeble efforts of policy the exiles returned the proselytes multiplied the temples were restored with increasing splendor and isis and serapis at length assumed their place among the roman deities nor was this indulgence a departure from the old maxims of government in the purest ages of the commonwealth sibyl and Asclepius had been invited by solemn embassies and it was customary to tempt the protectors of besieged cities by the promise of more distinguished honors than they possessed in their native country rome gradually became the common temple of her subjects and freedom of the city was bestowed on all the gods of mankind the narrow policy of preserving without any foreign mixture the pure blood of the ancient citizens had checked the fortune and hastened the ruin of athens and sparta the aspiring genius of rome sacrificed vanity to ambition and deemed it more prudent as well as honorable to adopt virtue and merit for her own wheresoever they were found among slaves or strangers enemies or barbarians during the most flourishing era of the athenian commonwealth the number of citizens gradually decreased from about thirty to twenty-one thousand if on the contrary we study the growth of the roman republic we may discover that notwithstanding the incessant demands of wars and colonies the citizens who in the first census of servius tullius amounted to no more than eighty-three thousand were multiplied before the commencement of the social war to the number of four hundred and sixty-three thousand men able to bear arms in the service of their country 
when the allies of rome claimed an equal share of honors and privileges the senate indeed preferred the chance of arms to an ignominious concession the samnites and the lucanians paid the severe penalty of their rashness but the rest of the italian states as they successively returned to their duty were admitted into the bosom of the republic and soon contributed to the ruin of public freedom under a democratical government the citizens exercise the powers of sovereignty and those powers will be first abused and afterwards lost if they are committed to an unwieldy multitude but when the popular assemblies had been suppressed by the administration of the emperors the conquerors were distinguished from the various nations only as the first and most honorable order of subjects and their increase however rapid was no longer exposed to the same dangers yet the wisest princes who adopted the maxims of augustus guarded with the strictest care the dignity of the roman name and diffused the freedom of the city with a prudent liberality End of chapter two part one